Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the show. 2022 is the centenary year of the greatest novel ever written in English, James Joyce's Ulysses. And if you're listening to this podcast around the time of its publication, then this coming Thursday is Bloomsday, the celebration of Joyce's life and work that takes place on the 16th of June every year, in honour of the day in 1904 when Ulysses is set. Earlier this year, we welcomed Ireland's leading Joyce scholar, Terence Killeen, to tell us about Ulysses Unbound, his definitive guide to Joyce's thorny masterpiece. He was joined by Ireland's greatest living novelist, Colm Tobin, who wrote the foreword. The two men were in conversation with Beltanati. Enjoy. Colm, I wonder... For the viewers that we have tonight who may not have read the book, they might have been put off by its size or by its reputation. What would you say to them? Would you put forward an argument to read it? Or do you feel this book finds the readers it needs? I think a long winter is very helpful and a few friends because the book becomes intriguing and the book becomes more and more enjoyable the more you understand, the more you're not... Uh, this is why Terence's book, I think, is, is, is so important, that it gives you the where and the when. So that, so that in, in his first, just, just, just in his summary, you know, OK, this is what's happening here. But then he tells you the style, so to watch out for the style. Then he gives you a glossary. And he does this episode by episode. So that really, I think one of the ways to read the book, perhaps, is as a set of 18 episodes. So instead of thinking about Ulysses, think I'm reading Hades or I'm reading whatever episode it is. So I need the following. I need to open, turns this book at that section. Right. So I know exactly who's there and I know what, what style Joyce is working towards. So, so that I, I think there is a way of, look, you can really, really begin to enjoy yourself with this book and it, it can get you through a winter. But then you find that the more there's a, there's a lot of good critical writing on the book. So you can become really intrigued at, for example, the relationship to the Odyssey. The fact that there are times when there isn't a relationship to the Odyssey or, or it's really stra a strange and slanted connection. So I think you could get a great deal out of the book. I think the more you study the book, the more pleasure you get. It doesn't mean you can't get pleasure from some episodes with no, knowing nothing. But the more you know, I think the more pleasure you get, and it really is in the end about pleasure. And the book becomes immensely enjoyable. And knowing when you see a name, realizing who that is from, for example, from Dubliners, becomes a lovely way of feeling that you're included in this 
strange circle that Joyce has created. And you two are sort of inside and you know who the various, you know, Tom Kernan and various figures from, or, or indeed Gabriel Conroy, from stories in Dubliners, and that Joyce has, has created his world like that. So I, I, I would think the first thing you think of is pleasure. That's very interesting. And I think actually in your foreword to this edition of, of Terence's book, you've written something that, that suggests that, that this is the liberation into style that, that means that having Terence's book in hand actually means you can relax a little bit, stop worrying about what's going on and enjoy that. Start enjoying the, the turns of phrase, the style, all the sort of acrobatics that's going on on the side. I wonder whether, Terence, whether you would suggest to a reader beginning for the first time or even to someone coming back uh, to Ulysses, is it better to be reading the book just on its own like that and trying to make sense of it yourself? Or do you think it is a book where it's hard to be a naive reader. You need to come to it with a companion in hand. And I say this in the knowledge that, of course, you've written one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I must believe in the idea. I would never have done that, I suppose. Um, I, I don't see any harm at all in combining a first reading with something like Ulysses Unbound, uh, you know, some kind of companion. I don't see why that's in some way, sometimes it's frowned on. I, I can't see the particular damage it's doing. Of course, it doesn't substitute for the book and never must, you know, uh, hurried undergraduates sometimes may seize it gratefully, noticing it's a lot shorter than, my books say, a lot shorter than Ulysses, and that's a point in its favour in the eyes of some. But for readers, normal readers, it's perfectly valid to read the episode, and we'll do that first, obviously, and then turn to a companion for that episode. It is very important that there are 18, as Colin was mentioning there, the book is you know, divided in that sort of way. It's disjunctive in some respects. You go from one to the other, but as somebody said, they're semi-autonomous, which is a nice phrase, I think. You know, semi-autonomy episodes, they exist in their own right, as well as within the overall structure, each one having, as you know, having its own organ and colour and stuff and different qualities, its own rhetoric, whatever. So you are, in a way, reading 18 sort of novellas, you know, as well as reading the whole of Ulysses. So both both are working. I don't mm -hmm. see any harm in taking a long companion with you on the journey. No, I think for, I mean, for what it's worth, I think the first time I attempted it, I didn't. And coming back to it this way, I actually read the summary, your summary first, then dived into the, the book and then came back uh, to the analysis, the commentary and, and the rest, which I certainly found a, a, a very useful and very enriching way of reading of reading the book. Column, you've written that there's no, in the foreword, you've written that there's no ideal reader to this book or that the ideal reader of, of Ulysses is perhaps in some way different to the ideal reader of, well, and perhaps any other book, I wonder, uh, in that in another book, you say it might be good to approach uh, from a naive perspective without much knowledge, whereas with Ulysses, there is merit to be gained in the scholastic approach of, you know, coming with a book in hand or with some knowledge of what you're about to read. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that it, that, that it helps sometimes. You really have to be very alert reading the book, irrespective of what guide you're using. I mean, there are moments when, one of the things that's going to happen in the book, and it's a big event, and it, what happens is it, it comes into episodes as undercurrent, which is that Blazes Boylan, who's having an affair with Molly Bloom, is going to visit her. And Bloom, her husband, knows this. And obviously we're going to see this from, in, in various ways, but often it's just a, a tiny moment. For example, he's on his way to a funeral, and just for one moment he uses the word he. And 
it's blazes boiling. And if you're reading carefully, you now this is a break. There's a break here in the, in the narrative. He's seen something else. And then two or three lines later, the others see blazes boiling. And they, they see him from a carriage. Dublin, the, the whole centre of Dublin being small is such a drama in the book. And Bloom's for one second, the tongue, his tongue changes. He just sees him and he uses the word he. And then they say something about blazes boiling. But, but you're constantly, you know, you could be wrong-footed in, with this book if you don't read every line carefully, because often there's something new occurring. The other thing that happens, I promise you this is true, that I was down, I'm in New York, and I was downtown this morning. And honestly, because I'm reading the book very carefully at the moment, I started to see, I didn't start, I did it just once, seeing something on the street and beginning to notice it in the same way as Bloom notices it. In other words, beginning to have my own little sour comment on a tiny thing I saw. And I promise you this can happen to you, that you can become Bloom very easily. His way of noticing, his way of his mind, the way his mind darts, it, it can go back into memory, into sadness, into grief into regret, and then it can suddenly dart forward into a sort of delight. He loves reform. He'd like to change the tram system. He, he, he's very good on, you know, how civic life could be improved. He has a wonderful mind, but it never stays still. It's not as though he begins. It's not stream of consciousness in that there's no stream exactly. He stops. There's a lot of punctuation in the way he thinks. And I'm saying that not only can that give you pleasure, but you can start thinking like that yourself. In other words, the book can get into your spirit. And for that, you don't need a guide. You need a guide. You, you, know, you need Terence's book. And you might even need a bigger book, the, the, the annotated Joyce, just to know what proper names are doing and also to know the what, where, when. But once you have that, there are times when the book can really flow on its own, consulting nothing, just simply following him and delighting in his mind because it's a, it's a most extraordinary creation. I mean, besides, I, I think, as, as, I mean, as Terence says in the book, it isn't just that it, it's a stylistic tour de force, the book, but it is actually psychologically interesting in that it takes the novel form two steps further in entering into the very spirit of a protagonist. And by the amount of felt life that Joyce gives him in the book, his, his ability to notice, as Henry James says, he's someone on who, well, he didn't say it about him, he's someone on whom nothing is lost. And therefore you can follow him. And, and, and really he becomes an intriguing protagonist whose inner life is examined and dramatized, I think with immense zeal and variety and texture. And that that's one aspect of the book, which I think goes further almost into realism. I mean, in the sense of we get somebody's mind. And it, so it isn't merely a novel that throws out all of that and only works with style. And I think that's, that's one of the points that I think Terence makes really vividly in his book. Very interesting. I, on that psychological aspect, that, that going in, we think of, of I, I think it again, it's Terence you've written somewhere, that sometimes, as well as being a modernist, Joyce it's far older than that, that he's he's almost akin to Dante or, or writing in a medieval style and that he, he does have this epic as well as this sort of intricate modernist psychology. And he marries the two together. You get them in tension a lot sort of through the text. I noticed that Anne Enright, uh, the writer recently said it's a book about being fallible, human, very much less than heroic. Uh, and yet, of course, the Wandering Bloom is our hero. He is our Ulysses, uh, to a large extent. What do you make of this idea of, of him as the hero, Terence? Well, I think Joyce is reimagining the idea of the hero, what the hero might be, 
the heroes of old fought battles and slew dragons and, uh, you know, rescued fair maidens, things like that. The modern hero, Bloom as hero, exemplifies a different kind of heroism, which has more to do with endurance than with, um, you know, heroic deeds as such. He's, I think at one stage, Bloom is called an unconquered hero. This is after someone has greeted Boylan, his rival, by saying, here, see the conquering hero come. This is in Sirens, actually. And the text then goes, along by the keys went Bloom, unconquered hero. So he may not have conquered, but he is, at the end, unconquered. He is still himself. So he's a whole personality and a whole subjectivity, which is in some ways a very modernist one, but also has these elements that you're mentioning of the medieval and the, you know, sort of the, the endurance and sort of what suffering can be. He, he, he is our hero, and Joyce consciously picked him on that basis. And he told Frank Budgeon he was doing that, that he felt that Ulysses, Odysseus, if you like, had some of the same qualities, but he was going to make them far more explicit and subspeciate temporis nostri, you know, under the, the guise of our age, he would present a hero just as valid as the heroes of old. Mm, but yet quite different for those who've read uh, the Odyssey, quite different often from uh, the, 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 well, the Ulysses, the, the Odysseus that we encounter in, in that, apart from perhaps, perhaps that they are both tricksy heroes, that they both use their guile to get out of difficult uh, situations that, and that their minds are interesting places. We just don't get the internal monologue of Odysseus in the same way as we do with Bloom. Yeah. Um, given that we're talking about Odysseus, we're talking about Homer, how necessary, I guess, do you think a knowledge of uh, Homer's Odyssey is if you are picking up Joyce's Ulysses. Terence, let's start with you on that. This is one of the continual sort of stumbling blocks, in a sense, to the book. The idea you have to go and read another prior to reading Ulysses. You, you don't, actually. It will work on its own terms, on its own level. What the Odyssey provided, as well as what I've already said, is a kind of structuring device and the title, the book's title, Ulysses, you ask yourself, why, why is it called that? You know, that's given to you as a big clue that there's another level, another layer underneath the layer you're reading. So at some point, you do, I think, come to confront the Odyssey as well. Uh, you don't have to necessarily read the Odyssey through. I don't think to get, you know, most of the, most of the ideas that are in the book itself, the way it deploys it. It all depends. Sometimes it's very much present, and Colin said this, sometimes it's far less present. But the Odyssey itself, just to just say, is a very tricky thing in its own right, as you pointed out, Belle, to some extent. You know, it's um, a strange epic. The Iliad is your real heroic epic. People kill each other all the time, and there's slaughter and wars and battle and everything. But the Odyssey is verging on romance, at least some of the time. And it's in a strangely different world. And also there are comic elements to it including in the whole Cyclops business, which sort of are surprising in a way in the Greek context. And Joyce highlights them. You know, he picks on universal elements that transcend the, say, the Greek heroic age. Does the humour of, of Joyce's Ulysses get lost sometimes, Colm, in, in its reputation as a difficult read? I mean, um, I suppose it does. Look, there's a joke where the two men are decided they want to find their friend Mulcahy. 
And seemingly this is straight out of Joyce's father, the sort of pub jokes he would tell. So they really feel, you know, there's a fog coming down over the graveyard, but they'd like to see the grave of their friend Mulcahy and they try and find out where it is. And the two of them wander towards it like characters out of Beckett. And they see eventually the gravestone that says Mulcahy. Oh, has Mulcahy, poor old Mulcahy, this is his grave. And then one of them looks up. And of course, over the grave, his wife has put a statue of the savior, of Jesus, the savior. And one of them looks up at the statue and says, oh, sure, that's not Mulcahy at all, sure. Look this. Oh, look, sure, that's not. And, oh, well, look, that is, I mean, that is just wonderful. I mean, that's the idea of the two of them looking up. And it was, it was you know, you get those sort of jokes, like, and, and again, you're dealing with a certain sort of humor. I mean, how do you explain when Simon Dedalus, Stephen's father in the book, based on Joyce's own father, says about someone who he doesn't like, and it's like saying, I'm going to punch him in the face, but he doesn't talk like that. Everything he does, it's not just a metaphor. It's just, it's just, he says, I'll tickle his catastrophe. Now you just have to go, uh, like, if you don't get that joke, I can't help you. I mean, how would you explain? I'll tickle that fellow's catastrophe. And I have to say, no matter how many times I hear it, I love it. And, uh, so, there, so there are times when, you know, he, he'll throw in any joke he wants. Like, the, the, you know, very soon afterwards, you know, there's a whole business of Lazarus and, you know, Jesus, okay, Jesus said Lazarus come forth. Of course, it's a, it must be an old Dublin joke. La- of course, Lazarus came fifth and lost the whole thing. <laughs> you know, Lazarus came forth, Lazarus came fifth. I mean, it's not a very good joke, but he throws in a lot of those sort of jokes. But I think the Mulcahy is pure genius. That's, that's, not, that's not Mulcahy at all. Is there something, I, you know, I'm conscious I'm talking to two, to two Irish people right now, but is there something Irish about that humour? When you said, you said... <laughs> I can't remember how you described it, but trying to pinpoint that humour. Something Irish that's rooted in Catholicism and a deep understanding uh, of Catholicism and the traditions surrounding it, which means that there is, you know, by sort of debasing the statue above in the graveyard, there is the irreverence that comes with that. It's something that is, it, it, for me, feels very Irish. <laughs> I'll try an attempt and answer if you like, Colin. I don't mind. If yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, uh, sort of even the sense of the hierarchical seriousness of Catholicism, its grave import, its massively important role in Irish history, its eschatological sort of scale of time, you know, the end of days and all. There's an impulse, a counter impulse to undercut that, I think, and to you know, I won't quite exactly say mock it, I won't quite say mock it, but certainly treat it rather irreverently. And that that is a, a feature. I mean, the joke Colin just recalled from Ulysses is indeed doing that, you know. It is, it's not blasphemous at all, but it's slightly disrespectful. And that is certainly, you know, within the, the ambit of the Irish Catholic imagination as deployed in Ulysses, certainly. It's a tricky subject, but it's certainly a very interesting one. Just one other thing to just to say, the whole Cyclops episode the one set in the pub in Barney Cairns, is hilarious from beginning to end. It's an extended joke, really. And, uh, you know, you have to sort of take it in terms of humour, as well as having a serious underlay, but it's just hilarious. Readers love it, readers love it. I think one of the advantages of um, Leopold Bloom being Jewish is that he finds Catholicism mysterious. And this means that Joyce then can not only sort of defamiliarize Catholicism, but he can make jokes at his, his expense. For example, when Bloom is walking up um, Westland Road, he sees the church, St. Andrew's, and he, well, he, he's been there. And he suddenly goes in and thinks, 
isn't it very dignified having wine, you know, that, that, that is bread and wine turned into the body and blood. And then he goes through other possibilities and then he comes to the idea. He's, earlier, he's seen an ad for ginger ale. And uh, of course, ginger ale is now on his mind. And he thinks, imagine if it was ginger ale. And I love the idea. I mean, it's a marvelous joke. It really, it really puts an end to the whole mass, as far as I'm concerned. The, the priest would be putting up that whole, and it would be ginger ale he'd be turning into the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it, and it is so tremendously blasphemous and also mischief. I mean, it's more mischievous and funny. You can see the amount of fun Joyce is having at the expense of Catholicism by bringing in somebody who doesn't, who doesn't, doesn't think it's normal. And the same thing happens indeed with the funeral, where his whole idea of death and um, how death is handled is really not, because it's not Catholic, it can become very, very funny about the whole business of what happens. And yeah, and I think if you're Irish, if you're Irish, it helps. Look, there's a long list at one point of clergy and they've all got names. It's like people out of Father Ted, you know, and they're all given their, their definite, you know, one is a Monsignor and very Reverend, right Reverend, right Reverend, CCPP, all those. I, there's a big long list of them and it's wonderful. And if, if you're Irish, it's just, I don't know why, it's really funny. But, and he doesn't overdo it with that. I mean, he follows more or less what they could be called. But I keep imagining Virginia Woolf in one of her evenings, you know, trying to read this and wondering, who are these? Like, why, why are we reading about them? I mean, whereas if you're an Irish Catholic, you're brought up with newspapers in which they're constantly listing who was at things, especially in the provinces, but Irish Times do it as well, about who was at a big funeral and among the attendees were. And it still happened. And um, so that Joyce has tremendous fun with it. But if you're Irish, it really helps to get those jokes because they're really part of your life and they're part of things that you take for granted. And the novel then defamiliarizes them and they become very, very funny and interesting. But I do worry a lot about Virginia Woolf reading this book. I want to come back to Virginia Woolf and her, but, and, and apparently disliking Joyce intensely. <laughs> but may, um, may I just say, Belle, sorry, but yes. may I just make one further comment what Colin has been saying? The business of Bloom at the Mass and the way he re- approaches it from this very external attitude is a great example of Joyce's manipulating point of view. The point of view is always Bloom's. He never sort of says Bloom thought, you know, Bloom felt. He just gives you as if it were straight narration, which it's not. He gives you Bloom's perspective. So you're, you're inhabiting Bloom's world and Bloom's mind as he's making these very funny, indeed they are very funny, observations on what he's seeing from the outside. But it's, it's also literary technique and achievement of considerable dimensions, mm. part of the whole you know, inner monologue thing that you know about. Mixing, mixing narration and interiority. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
before we leave this question of sort of, well, I guess how important I- Ireland, how important being Irish is to the to the text. Column, um, I asked both you and, and Terence to choose a passage from the book. Yours is in Cyclops, which we were just talking about there, uh, the, the citizen passage, as it's as it's known, or the citizen conversation between Bloom and this Irish nationalist known as the citizen. Could I ask you to read your section? Yeah, I, I should say that all around this is pure hilarity, is parody, is pastiche, and 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 it's and it's, and it's really elaborate and exuberant. But that every so often it moves down into the conversation in the pub. And I suppose from one perspective, I suppose the political perspective, this is one of the most, I suppose, oft-quoted. I mean, it's not a, it wasn't a hard one to choose. Bloom was talking, so he's in a pub and there are these people around him who are, some of whom are Irish nationalists and a lot of whom are talking in cliches. And um, so Bloom was talking and talking with John Wise and he quite excited with his dunduckety mud-coloured mug on him and his old plum eyes rolling about. Persecution, said he. All the history of the world is full of it, perpetuating national hatred among nations. And of course, Bloom is Jewish, so watch this. But do you know what a nation means? John says, says John Wise. Yes, said Bloom. What is it? Says John Wise, a nation. A nation is the same people living in the same place. My God then says Ned laughing, if that's so, I'm a nation, for I'm living in the same place for the past five years. So, of course, everyone had the laugh at Bloom, and says he trying to muck out of it, are also living in different places. That covers my case, says Joe. What is your nation? If I may ask, says the citizen. Ireland, says Bloom. I was born here. Ireland. The citizen said nothing, only cleared the spit out of his gullet and gob. He spat a red bank oyster out of him right into the corner. And then there's another of those parodies and pastiches, and then we go back to the conversation. Shows over the drinks, says I. There's a narrator in the middle of all this who's who's really very difficult to define. Which is which? That's mine. It's all about drinks, says Joe, as the devil said to the dead policeman. And I belong to a race too, says Bloom that is hated and persecuted. Also now, this, this very moment, this very instant, Robbie nearly burnt his fingers with the butt of his old cigar, robbed, says he, plundered, insulted, persecuted, taking what belongs to us by right, at this very moment, says he, putting up his fist, sold by auction in Morocco like slaves or cattle. You're talking about the new Jerusalem, says the citizen. I'm talking about injustice, says Bloom. Right, says John Wise, stand up to it then with force, like men. But it's no use, Mrs. Bloom, to see force, hatred, history, all that. That's not life for men and women, insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What, says Alf? Love, says Bloom. I mean the opposite of hatred. I feel like that is at once epitomized, well, sort of encapsulated everything we were just uh, talking about. But before we came to, to what we were discussing just before we got to that passage, Colm, uh, I feel, uh, having come back to the text for this, I have felt as though reading it out loud is almost one of the only ways to, if you're not with a companion in hand, to make it 
suddenly sing and to make it feel as though you're understanding what what when you look at the page sometimes you you don't understand and the minute it is read particularly when it is read so beautifully uh it becomes something absolutely different completely different so it's, thank you for reading that for us in that way um tell me why you chose that passage i think that um this idea of bloom as someone who's, whose mind is his own and whose thinking is fresh and who doesn't have a set of close friends or a peer group, isn't part of any group. And the whole sense of him as an outsider in this world, which is now so enclosed, which, which is in a way becoming so insular, and that um, he himself steps out of this. And it gives him, I think, a tone throughout the book that every time he speaks or every time he notices something rich and interesting is said, as well as it being ordinary, that, that he has a great intelligence, which is... I suppose he's a great humanist in certain ways, but he's also so, someone who's has, has a, I suppose his response to life is fresh and glittering. And you see it in that sequence where he seems to have been defeated by these people. He doesn't have it. He doesn't, he can't do what we call pub talk. As earlier on in the book, we see that he can't really do, he can't really tell a joke. He can't really tell a story. That, that he's sort of helpless in male company where everyone's interrupting each other, everyone's shouting cliches and half abuse and what we call banter. He's, 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 no, he's, he's not a noisy man. He's no use with banter. And so we see this uh, as, as the moment where I suppose it's, it's the most obviously and openly political moment. This is written after the First World War. It's written after the 1916 rebellion. So, I mean, these are burning issues. And it's clear that this book is going to be published in the next few years when the world will be in a state of recovery wondering what happened in 1914 or 1916. And so Bloom comes in with these very quotable quotes, a nation, the same people in the same place, or, you know, hatred history. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's, a, it's an obvious, it's, it's, it is one of the greatest hits of the book. So, I'm, I mean, I'm being pretty cheap in, in choosing it because it's, it's really one of the obvious things to choose. I think if, if, our, if, if some of our audience have not picked up the book I feel strongly that that would entice them to do so I feel like it also just what you were saying there that the sort of the sense of the duality not only in bloom of his kind of his earthiness we you know he, he goes to the toilet he looks at his cat's bum hole there's all there's a sort of earthiness about him as well as this mind that you've just shown this mind that is so serious and and very, it deals in, in concepts a lot and is, and is constantly uh, thinking there's a duality that almost runs through the whole work the duality of, of the sort of the plot running in one track and then the stylistic acrobatics alongside it uh, the fact that there is this this Irishness if you want to say but also it's rooted in Dublin we are going around the streets of Dublin we're rooted in that reality but with the Odyssey as our structure and our framework. Um, and this, this sort of the baseness and the intellect at the same time, all, all running parallel. Is that something that you recognize, Terence, as well? I do indeed, yes, I do. Uh, Bloom is the complete man. You know, I mean, Joyce aimed for completeness. That means aspects that aren't always uh, to the liking of certain people. In the early days, as you're well aware, there was a huge scandal over the sexual content of Ulysses the obscenity and everything. That was the initial scandal of Ulysses. And um, as I say, Joyce put, what's put it all in, he has just the qualities you mentioned there, the visit to the toilet earlier on, which I must say I've always admired quite a lot because it's presented, I think, very uh, delicately. It's not sort of wallowed in or anything, you know, or sort of gloated on or nothing. It's just presented as another thing that Bloom does. And 
it takes its place in his world, you know, where it's part of his body, his very important body, he's a very, very much a bodily presence. So all of that is there. And the book aims at a unique integration, I think, of body and mind, style and substance, content and form. These are all uniquely integrated in the work so that it achieves its great impact all the more as it goes on, where Joyce takes more risks, if you like, as a writer, more risks with style, more risks with different weird, weird ways of presenting things while holding on to the reality of Bloom, especially, all through. And it's, inter it's interesting you mentioned that that part of the, the going to the toilet there, because amongst all the rest of the obscenity, that was something that even his friend, Joyce's friend, Ezra Pound, found distasteful, this idea of sitting on the toilet reading a book. And But but I'm sure many of the readers would have been done, doing that. They would have been sitting on the loo reading a book, whether they, whether we're talking about 1922 or whether we're talking about uh, today, it feels like a sort of universal act. Colm, how do you think the way, given that we are now 100 years on after the, the publication of the book, the way we react to, to the obscenity has changed because that which was seen as, as obscene then really to us is, is absolutely not obscene. Whereas, for example, the masturbation scene with Gertie McDowell is quite problematic now. Yeah, I, I mean, Terence's book is interesting about saying there are so many ways of reading this book and it's been used in so many different ways. For example, as a, say, for example, a post-colonial book or a book about gender or a book about androgyny. You know, there are so many ways, but actually please pay attention to the style. Please notice that in the Sirens episode, you know, he begins to really work with the style. And if you're missing that, you're really missing the great adventure of the book. However, if, at the moment, the, the question of the male gaze is a really large question. A day doesn't go by without it, you know. In other words, in, in, in any university, the male gaze has become the great subject. And of course, this really is a big issue in USA because Bloom, from really from very early on in the book, he, if he sees a woman, he gazes at her. And then, of course, he gazes at Gertie McDowell. The, the, the argument would be then that Joyce seems to have understood what this problem would be. By presenting Bloom early on in the book as dominating domestic space, in other words, he is the one in the kitchen. And by also later on, when he's thinking of going to a, to a Turkish bath, there's the, the question of his penis is raised and, it, and it's described as being like a flower. And so there is, there, there is a way in which Joyce isn't making him into, he's not a lecher wandering in a city all day, leching all day with his male gaze ahead of him. And, and you, once you start reading it, not just closely, but at all, you see how Joyce is already, I mean, a hundred years ago, playing with these ideas of actually what is a man and um, how are we going to judge his masculinity? And then the other questions arise, which are the colonial questions, which are the whole idea of, for example, in Wandering Rocks, everyone gets an appearance to say something, except the Lord Lieutenant, Lord Dudley and his wife, who are in a carriage, and they don't get to speak. And the idea of silencing them, not, not just throwing, no one throws a stone at them, just simply they're silenced, they're, they're full. There, there are so many ways you can read the book. And of course, the androgyny business in the nighttime sequence, where, you know, so, so is, is so alert to the big debate now, especially in the United States, over transgender rights and transgender questions and the whole idea of gender identity. And then there's the small question, the A word, which is called appropriation. What right does any man have to end their book with a, with, you know, with a woman speaking frankly about sex? Isn't, you know, and so these are burning questions of now, 
which the book relates to. Now, I think Terence's book is great because it brings us back to an initial question, which is actually, if you don't mind, these are minor questions. You can have them if you want to. But if you're missing the large question of style, you're missing the book. But, but what I mean, just what I'm, all I'm pointing out here is how this book can be made our contemporary. I mean, we have to force it slightly, but nonetheless, it, it, it is, it's a particular interest that you can latch onto it if you're interested in the four questions I just raised. And, and these may be tangential to the, to, to the larger project of the book, but nonetheless, they're there. That's, am I right in thinking, I almost understood you saying that there was a sense in which we could imagine that Joyce might have foreseen the problems ahead with some of the issues that we're dealing with. So whether we're talking about the male gaze or, or, or androgyny or ma masculinity in general, was that right or am I pushing that too far? Terence? Is that for me? Colin has thrown it to you, Terence. So yeah. That's a question for you. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the answer sort of, you know, unequivocally is that these were, Joyce, if you like, was foreseen, but these were modern concerns and modern issues that he was, you know, ahead of his time in so many ways in bringing to the fore. And the questions he raises in our minds, the question, for instance, that Colin mentioned about his authority over Molly Bloom, his right to present this woman, to assert this woman in this way, it is totally germane to so many current issues with literature, with criticism and theory as well. So, yeah, he's ahead of the posse in that as an, and in other respects. And certainly Sirens, uh, not Sirens, sorry, but Nausicaa, the one with, with Gertie McDowell, and the beach and room masturbating and all that is an incredible combination of, of um, sort of a, a young woman fantasizing. And it's from her perspective, you get it, her fantasy leads her, apparently it appeared to this, you know, for the time, unusual degree of exposure to personal, in fact, Bloom. And we, 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 we sort of, we know that it's Bloom just, just about, but it's all in her mind. And Bloom's response, masturbator response, we find subsequently just that after that, after she goes off, she limps off because Gertie McDougall was lame. And then you're in Bloom's mind. It's, oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, you know, it's a complex, there's even disability issues in there, if you like. It's a complex weave of controversies and concerns and I don't know, preoccupations that remain so much part of our lives. Mm, but I, And I wonder how much of that is us with our uh, sensibilities of today reading into a text that is of its time or how much of it is that the text itself, perhaps because it is very special in some way, is living and does continue to adapt, is mercurial in that way. Colm? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Terence's point here that Joyce was a modern man. It isn't as though by some odd coincidence, the issues that he raised were, are the ones that we're interested in now. Of course, he was fascinated by what empire and province meant. And he has, you know, he, he I mean, it's great that he writes these articles for the, uh, we have to be careful with them because he wrote them for, uh, for a certain audience in Trieste who, who, who were sort of interested, much more interested in the end of empire. But nonetheless, he, he was concerned as, as anyone like him was with what it means for a nation, for a language, for people, what all those things mean. And of course, he, was, he knew them well enough to be able to ironize them, to be able to deal with them, not with, with, with full emotion, but with all, from all sorts of angles. And of course, he was also a modern man in the sexual sense. 
in, in that there was a great fragility we see from the letters about, you know, his, his dreadful fear of his wife being unfaithful to him and his own susceptibility, which we know from, you know, various flirtations and even, you know, longer ones. So that he, he is a modern man in that sense. And these are the things that were preoccupying him. But I just am... Um, there's, there's one really rich part of Terence's book, which I just wanted to say something about, which is Anthony Burgess thought the best section was called Oxen of the Sun. And uh, Oxen of the Sun, if, look, if you don't know what's going on in Oxen of the Sun, please look for help. I mean, it's just really dial 999 because, you know, it, it really is difficult, uh, th- that particular one. And there's a nice letter by Joyce about it. But I, I found with Terence's book that that chapter of his on Oxen of the Sun was really, I just want to, Terence, if you could just tell us like why this chapter was really, why, why I needed your book. Well, that, that particular chapter, as you know, is um, a series of parodies of English prose styles from the very earliest times to the, to the most ultimate post-Carlylean welter. And this is paralleling the birth, the, the slow birth of a baby in the, in the, in the hospital, in the Hollis Street Hospital. So the two are going on simultaneously, side by side, the evolution of English style is being paralleled by the growth of the embryo, the fetus, the birth eventually too, though it's a kind of an extraordinary birth when it comes. What, what Joyce is doing there, <laughs> and it's not easy to sort of exactly summarise, but is, um, I think the young men in the episode who are its main focus, they're sitting in a kind of ante room of Horace Street, while the birth is proceeding upstairs. So I think in one way, they're averting their eyes from the messiness of actually giving birth and the pain and the, you know, existential drama of it by projecting it all onto the screen of English literature and English prose, which becomes a sort of a surrogate or or a, a sort of symbol, if you like, too, for what's really going on, which is all happening offstage as often with Joyce happening off stage. So yeah, I mean, I can certainly testify that a commentator like me has their work cut out <laughs> trying to, you know, put yeah. this together into a something comprehensible. But that is some of the underlying, it's their own fear of female ability to generate, their own fear of birth that's part of what's going on. And that is part of their 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 mockery of it, you know. It, 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 it's, it's an extraordinary episode in all sorts of ways. Yes, you should dial 999. Yes. No, but I actually think that your chapter on that is, is really brilliant. And I mean, for any reader, it, it's, it's really an essential thing. But I think you, you really, that's one of the times when I felt your, your sort of clarity of mind coming, that you really explained this clearly. And thank you. I mean, we're all really grateful to you. Mm, I would agree. Oh, thank you, Tom. For any for any viewers who haven't uh, who haven't yet managed to to read Terence's book, this is a part where he really does go line by line and shows you the parodies that are happening in each section. It is a sort of encyclopedic whistle stop tour through an English literature curriculum. <laughs> yes, uh, and, that is, and, and that's talking about the Oxen of the Sun episode before we get to um, yes. before we get to Terence's uh, chapter on it. So definitely, absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, and actually, on that Oxen of the Sun, you say so. Um, I wonder about this because Terence, you say so disoriented, so disoriented have some critics become that they've resorted to the desperate measure of positing another narrator in that chapter. Uh, I guess something that you don't buy into particularly. It is amazing that Ulysses still can stymie critics, can stymie academics, even a hundred years on, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. It, it, does, it does testify to the book's power. I think Joyce would be pleased to know that if, in fact, you know, it wouldn't bother him. On the contrary, it would be quite pleasing for him. He, he, his mind is an incredible place. There's no doubt about that, whatever. And yeah, resourcing, having to go to the arranger, as they call this other narrator, a person who sort of manipulates the plot, manipulates what's going on for his own, apparently, to be a man, it may not be, but anyway, for his own obscure interests is a fascinating idea, but to have to even come up with it shows the problems critics have in trying to account for the different things that are happening in this book. This person is not the narrator, which is a standard thing in novels. You have a narrator, you know, it's not a character either. It's it's a force outside it that seems to drive the thing. Hugh Kenner actually describes it quite well in relation to Oxen and others. Someone who sort of glances at the actual given subject, okay, a birth in Hollow Street Hospital, and goes off and writes a whole series of parodies of English literature from the very start till the current day, virtually, you know, just like that. And the reader's task or the critic's task is to kind of reintegrate these disjunctive elements into one whole, which I've tried to do as far as possible by writing a guide. And you have su- you have succeeded. And and I think, as you say, Joyce would have been thrilled that this was still happening. I think. Oh, what? Well, so. <laughs> I, I, it's a book that will keep the critics talking for, I can't remember how many years, but... <laughs> a long, long time. Busy for, and it certainly has kept them busy. Mm. Um, let's talk Let's talk about the influence. Let's talk about the legacy. Certainly, uh, I can't remember who mentioned Virginia Woolf column. I think it was you <laughs> and her uh, reading this. I mean, let's well, let's talk first of all about about the contemporaries, the the effects, the influence that that Joyce had on uh, those contemporaries. Was it immediately felt, or is it something that needed time to bed in? Oh, I think it really mattered that T. S. Eliot's response to it, which came reasonably early, and then involved a lot of publishing um, in relation to Finnegan's Wake. T. S. Eliot was very generous with Faber, with, with just 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 the amount of the fact that he not just printed the book, but printed stuff beforehand, including critical work. So T.S. Eliot's essay was, I think, vitally important. And um, in, in also that W.B. Yeats weighed in. I'm not sure Yeats actually read the book in full, but he weighed in because he saw something there. And in fact, Virginia Woolf, I mean, it's, it's her first response everybody talks about because she's used, unfortunately, the word underbred. And um, she said really ugly things about, you know, that he was obviously a working man, was self-educated, which was entirely untrue. But um, I mean, we, we both, Terence myself, went to the same university as he did. And the idea that you you were underbred was just—I mean, really, really Virginia. And and but 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 I think that later on, under the influence of Eliot, she really did see, especially the Bloom Bloom's what we might call stream of consciousness, although just Bloom thinking in the novel. I think she did see that as very valuable. So she did, she didn't just have one response to it. I think like a lot of people, she she you know when she saw it first, just really wondered about it. But um, but the Eliot response, because he, Eliot was fascinated at connecting it to the Odyssey, at the idea that the epic would have to connect, the ordinary would have to connect to an epic in order for the ordinary to function. And of course, he was thinking about his own wasteland, um, which comes out in the same year. So, so you know, you know he, Joyce was terribly lucky sometimes with, for example, Harry Shaw Weaver and Sylvia Beach. I mean, the women around him and Jane Heap, you know, the, the, the women who published him and looked after him. But, but he also, of course, they all understood the importance of what he was doing. So it wasn't as though they were all, because he was handsome or a beautiful singing voice, that actually the project 
from Dubliners through portrait to Ulysses was something that any woman, any, you know, with any sort of literary nose realised was something important. And of course, Ezra Pound was also there. So, I mean, I don't think it's a question of the ordinary reader in the early years because of obviously the censorship problems. But, but these essays do make a difference. These, these, I don't know what you think, Terence, about this. Yes, I, I absolutely agree that they were very, very important in establishing Ulysses in the canon of modernism, of course. They, 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 they confirmed it and baptized it as a modernist text. And in some ways, they misread aspects of it. Uh, Elias essay, Ulysses Order and Myth, sort of makes it sound too, like it's sort of reverential to the classics more than it really is. He misses the elements of humor. He misses the Irish just completely. You know, it's turned into a kind of a, a, a verdict on the, what was the phrase, the immense panorama, futility, and anarchy that is modern history. You know, you see, it's not like that, actually. It's not actually a commentary on futility and anarchy. It's just a book about people in given city with the very strange things they do. So, but any of importance, absolutely, and others that are found and others is crucial to its canonization yeah. as a modernist text. I'm just thinking about something there that, it's a funny word, futility, because it might seem as though, because these are a group of chancers, they really don't work very much, they talk too much, they, most of them drink too much. But oddly enough, it isn't a book about futility. It isn't a dark book about the pointlessness of life. It's the opposite. And, and that, you know, when he, when he talks about hatred, the opposite of hatred, you know, he is talking about love. And he, and he is also talking about life. So that it, 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 there is a funny richness in the way these people proceed, the way they talk, the way they think, that um, really goes against that idea of that, that is a despairing, you know, post-First World War novel about the darkness of the human soul. That's, that's not there, really, is it? Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know, Colin, you have created the beautiful, the perfect segue for me to introduce Terence's chosen passage, talking about love, talking about uh, hope, talking about the beauty of love and, and the truth of love. Uh, Terence, the passage uh, that you uh, chose from Lester, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember, Lestragonians, Lestragonians, I say. Lestragonians, which is a daydream that happens uh, in the context of a, of a pub scene, a daydream from Bloom uh, about his and his wife Molly's relationship right at its beginning. Uh, can I ask you to read it as well, please? Sure, yeah. This is in the pub, as you said, and Bloom has just had a glass of wine, which has had a certain, a burgundy, some effect on his mind has made him more slightly sentimental, maybe more nostalgic, and uh, it's happening in the pub. Stuck on the pane, two flies buzzed, stuck. Then glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the wine press grapes of burgundy. Sun's heat it is, sings to a secret touch, telling me memory. Touched his sense, moistened, remembered, hidden under wild ferns on hosts below us, bay sleeping, sky, no sound, the sky, the bay purple by the lion's head. 
green by drumlet, yellow-green towards Sutton, fields of undersea, the lines faint brown in grass, buried cities. Pillowed on my coat, she had her hair, earwigs in the heather scrub, my hand under her nape, you'll toss me all. Oh, wonder, cool, soft with ointments, her hand touched me, caressed. Her eyes upon me did not turn away. Ravished over her I lay, full lips, full open, kissed her mouth. Yum. Softly she gave me in my mouth the seed cake, warm and chewed. Mokish pulp her mouth had mumbled, sweet sour of her spittle. Joy, I ate it, joy. Young life, her lips that gave me pouting. Soft, warm, sticky, gum jelly lips. Flowers her eyes were, take me, willing eyes. Pebbles fell, she lay still. A goat, no one. High on Ben Hope's rhododendrons, a nanny goat walking sure-footed, dropping currents. Screamed under ferns, she laughed warm-folded. Widely I lay on her, kissed her. Eyes, her lips, her stretched neck beating, woman's breasts full in her blouse of nuns veiling, fat nipples upright. Hot I tongued her. She kissed me, I was kissed. All yielding, she tossed my hair. Kissed, she kissed me. Me, and me now. Stuck, the flies buzzed. So, yes, it, it's a nostalgic passage, of course, beginning there, you know, recording the start of their marriage in lots of ways where he proposed to her eventually out in the whole's head. So it's very beautiful, very warm. At the same time, you know, Bloom is now a different person. That comes across too. Why it's, I like it. It's interesting. You, when you read it, when we hear it read beautifully like that, it doesn't match with what you see on the page. You think to hear it that it would be written as a poem. It doesn't look the same as, as how you then see it on the page. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think it is. I mean, typography has its own effect. It does. If you were to kind of put it in, you know, broken lines, you'd have a different experience, but it's heading heading in that direction. Mm. It is, yeah, I quite agree. And it's worthy, of course, the, the, the very strong focus on the on where they are, on hope with all the place names, Drumleck, Sutton, Lions Bay, you know, they're all sort of carefully enumerated. You aren't just anywhere. You're in Dublin, particular place. This is going on. It's a foundational moment of the book, really, when Bloom and Molly make this great excursion to hope. And of course, it returns at the very end when Molly rem remembers him there, the two of them. And he finally proposes to her there. And she says, yes, I will, of course, yes. And yes, and amidst all the cynicism of the affairs and the, the infidelities mm. and everything else, we suddenly realise that their love is mm. based on something extremely strong and, and the foundations of that are, are very strong. And yet, lest we get too sentimental, the flies buzzing on the window pane remind us of... Absolutely, of, of where we are now. That was then and this is now, you know. <laughs> and that's life also, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, the, 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 that moment never goes, but at the same time, you're, it's, it's another time. And, and that for me is, again, that duality, which I love, this sense of 
you are there is there are two things always going on at once with with what you're reading at, at any one time um, I wonder now I, I just want to go back to something we said before about the canon and the acceptance of, of this book into the canon uh, before we go to our Q&A's um, I wonder whether you think that now where we are 100 years on the acceptance into the literary canon has a risk of pushing Ulysses into an academic context and taking it away from the mainstream reader who might approach it without all of that of that uh, baggage, Terence. Um, <clears throat> that risk certainly exists. Um, it is canonized in that sense, all right. And I don't see how we can help that. There's no question of it ever disappearing from the canon at this stage. So we have to live with it. But people like like Colin and myself and can subvert it a bit, you know. We can draw attention, can't we, Colin, to the Irish elements, for instance. Yeah. Turn to remember a time when we were in university where if you hadn't read the book, even as an undergraduate, people despised you within a circle. You know, in other words, if you if you really were looking for a very cool date and you hadn't read Ulysses, people say, well, hold on. He had, you know, about somebody, he hasn't read Ulysses. And so it was, it was, <laughs> I don't know if that's still the case. I hope not. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was very trendy mm. uh, and, and to have read it mm. and, mm. you know, to have various opinions about it. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we could do a great advertising campaign, you know, Valentine's Day campaign right. saying, you know, if Look at the vehicle. He hasn't read you, says, well, I'm not. You, know, <laughs> you could have this poor... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the corner while he's, you know, his friend who's plainer than he is is getting all the girls because he's the one who's able to quote <laughs> lines from the book. So, I mean, well, it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think that that's, that, that, that sort of slight elitism uh, is rather lessened these days. I think it's quite true what you're saying, but I, I think, you know, more and more readers do relate to it you know, in different ways, and having read Ulysses, I hope it become less of a badge of honour and distinction, and more of just something I've done in the course of my life. Mm. Yeah, but, I mean, I wonder what, yeah, perhaps that would be the backfiring of Joyce's ambition to have this uh, elevated to such a status, the mythology that his, that his, uh, his Odyssey, his Ulysses gets, <laughs> actually backfires yeah. and suddenly makes it uh, something that only the, the sort of scholars can, can aspire to. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of time. I'd like to get to our questions because we do, we do have uh, lots of questions. So thank you to, to all of you for sending them in. I'm going to pick out uh, a few. There are many that, that cross over, that overlap. So we'll, we'll just ask one when we have those. Uh, so first from Connor. Uh, thanks, Terence. Dubliner here, who only finished Ulysses on a second attempt with the aid of your wonderful book. A question for both Terence and Colm. Can we infer too much as a modern reader about Irish politics? I found Bloom, and therefore Joyce, even more appealing because he champions liberalism, tolerance, and is against violent Irish nationalism. What would Joyce make of modern Ireland? Oof, okay, lots to, lots to unpack there. <laughs> who wants to begin on that? Does anyone want to start? Well, I think that um, his... Um... His response, he's giving Bloom those lines about violence. I, I think, I think is, you know, it's a beautiful speech that Bloom makes. And, and I think watching Joyce's, oh, you know, it, it, since really what, what he's talking about in his letters and, and, and various times in Ulysses is, is that in 1904, the dominant theme was the Irish literary revival, was translation, was the use of Irish myth. And Stephen and we notice Bloom really have no interest in this. It's, it's, I mean, there are references to it, but they're often 
making he's making fun of Yates and um, he's making fun of Yates's sisters. He's making fun of the movement. I mean, it gives him something else to make fun of in those pieces that Terence referred to in Cyclops. I mean, the, the big explosive ones, some of them are really about translatorese. That's what, what's, what's dominant in the culture. And what's marvelous about Joyce is, of course, whatever is dominant in the culture, he can go for it. He, he can really have created a lot of energy by being against it and by sailing around it in various ways. So, um, you, you know, I mean, I'm not, I really, really don't want to put Joyce as being the, you know, the guardian angel of the peace process. Because I think that's just, just, you know, we've had enough pubs, we've had enough statues, but we cannot once more say, well, Joyce would have loved the Anglo-Irish agreement. I mean, just please, no. But, but nonetheless, he is there as an insistent voice for some sort of sense of non-insularity, of opening the island, of being open to, for example, sex, you know, writing about sex, thinking about sex, to also having a Jewish man wandering in a city as your main protagonist who's open-minded. You know, that, that all, all of those things do matter as images. And, and, they, and they do make Joyce into, I mean, it's not as though he's a political thinker, because he's not, but, but that Ulysses is, is somewhere a book that does deal with this large question of how you deal with an emerging nation and how you deal with living in a city, which is, you know, both in and out of the emerging nation. So yeah, the, the, those are the questions um, that, that were there in 1904 and 1922 and now. So. Terence, would you agree with that, that there is a, a sense in which he occupies the centre ground and to our eyes now in the modern world where we are increasingly polarised, that that resonates. It, it does, yes. Uh, Joyce was subversive, certainly back in the Ireland of the day. He was asking questions of the new Irish state just as it emerged. That is an important conjunction that the Irish state emerged in 2022. So did Ulysses. So fundamental questions were being asked of that state, what it meant to be a country, what is my nation, and so on, at the very start. And we're still working our way through them, but it is enormously um, liberating for us to have a work that, you know, opens up so many other horizons than the rather narrow ones that emerged in the early years of the Irish state, which was a very narrow construction, you know, favouring a certain Catholic bourgeoisie, um, petty bourgeoisie that just took over completely. And without getting political about it too far, Ulysses and Bloom, as Colin said, were such different creations to that, that they're immensely valuable, remain valuable for us in that respect, I think. I have a question here from Mark. How many characters in Ulysses were based on real people and therefore would have had resonance for Joyce's peers? For example, uh, I think it's now believed that Cinch was actually based on Oliver St. John, St. John uh, Gogarty. Is that so, Terence? Should we start with you on that? Well, I, I haven't counted them, and it'd be hard to count. There is a book by Vivian Igo, The Real People and Joyce's Ulysses, that actually enumerates them more or less completely. Um, a great deal is the short answer. A great deal are real people, some under their own names, some under, under aliases for obscure reasons. But Mulligan is Gogarty, sort of that, that. Some of these are very clear, some rather less so. But it, it gave the book a huge layer of reality to have them in it like that. This is a living, real city. People encounter each other. And some of them, someone like Willie Murray was a real person. Indeed, he was Joyce's uncle by marriage. We've just mentioned en passant, but he's there, you know, and he can be conjoined with someone, a fellow called Bob Doran, who wasn't real, apparently. So the mix is incredibly cohesive and intense. And it just gives it a huge, important layer of reality. I think even for non-Irish readers and everything, they get some of that sense of a real, real living place from mm -hmm. the book. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean at the opening, opening of Cyclops, you get um, Mrs. David Sheehy MP, and of course, Ms. David Sheehy was an MP, and Mrs. David Sheehy, you know, Joyce would, would have actually known her, and then meets Father Conmey, SJ, and of course, Joyce loves the word Conmey, because Conmey, you know, and Sheehy, Conmey, MP, SJ, he just loves the whole jumble of the, of the terms, but it is, they could easily have met. And that conversation they have could easily have been a conversation between two people who, you know, you, you, can, you can look them up. I mean, there they were. And so it's, it's tremendous fun. But the Bob Dorn one is, is great because I mean, he's, he's in Dubliners. So yes. it's fun sometimes. You go, oh, my God, there's Greta Conroy has just appeared from the, from the story of the dead. And, you know, you go, oh, I know her. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's that lovely feeling sometimes because there's so many people from Dubliners just come in for, come in, come, just come in for the ride into the book. And uh, that's also as though they're as though they are real people. And, and of course, and of course, it, it's it's you know, were it not that this form were changed and it was lengthened, uh, Ulysses could have been part of Dubliners itself. Um, I want to quickly move on to, to Mary Arnold uh, and Eric G, who ask a similar question. So I'm going to try and wrap it into one. Um, they are asking about the fact that Joyce, obviously writing about uh, Dublin here, spent so much time living away from Ireland. Is is Bloom's outsider insider status as both Irish and Jewish a reflection of Joyce's own seemingly complex relationship with Ireland? Um, who'd like to start on that? Terence. Okay, thanks. Yes, uh, the, the short answer is I, I think it probably is. Joyce lived away from Ireland most of his life. He, he had absorbed all he needed to absorb for the work he was going to do. And after that point, I think he felt Ireland was actually dangerous for him, to tell you the truth, that it contained elements that were hostile. He may have slightly exaggerated in his own mind the hostility involved, but he needed distance to create what he created, to recall the whole memory palace of Ulysses as it really is. And Bloom's status, Bloom's outsider status, which Colin described very well there, unable to tell a story properly, can't tell a joke, hard to kind of give a sequential account of anything. His outsider status in relation to the intense orality of Irish society, hugely oral culture, matters. He was a print creation, lots of ways, matters a great deal in, in the privilege he's given in the book, making you revise your sense of what matters in a given city, given society. I want to ask, uh, so this was several people asking about, um, well, several people saying they really enjoyed uh, the reading aloud and, and the passages that were read aloud by both Colm and uh, Terence. Uh, in fact, so much that they're asking about the validity of getting an audiobook and listening to this either by audio on an audiobook or alongside an audiobook. So having the copy whilst listening. Uh, someone mentions a version narrated by Jim Norton. I'm afraid I don't know it, but um, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. So Terence, would, would you approve of approaching the book that way? Oh, totally. And this is the time to mention the, the RTE recording of 1982, a landmark occasion, actually, which is extraordinarily well done and is available. It wasn't just one person, really. It was a kind of radio dramatization of the book with some excellent performances and a great sort of sense of the, the work. And yeah, I totally believe in the, the oral approach. And Colm and I picked passages, of course, that lent themselves to reading rather better than some others do, to put it mildly, you know, parts of Eumaeus, parts of Oxen are very hard to read with any degree of certainty or confidence and you lose your own thread. But nonetheless, it is absolutely possible to do it and it's very beautiful. And 
I think well, is it Peg Monaghan who reads Molly's? Uh, I think it's a soliloquy at the end. You know, it's wonderful actually. Wonderful. It's a particularly beautiful thing. I think Joyce has been lucky with this. It's, Jim Norton is a tremendous actor, and, and he has a tremendous range. And um, but that event in 1982 is really special because the um, RTE, the, the, the Irish Television Station, actually had a rep. In other words, had a group of actors who worked together all the time doing soap operas, doing all sorts of for radio. So they knew each other. And so when they came to do Ulysses, it wasn't as though they just arrived in. They they, they were an ensemble. And our mutual friend Ed Mulhall, who was working at the station at the time, brought Anthony Burgess. Just came out that day. He was in Dublin that day. And he came out to the station to do, do an interview about Ulysses. And Ed brought him in to, to see the actors. And he thought it was astonishing because he was getting sounds and he was getting that ensemble notion that these words were not unfamiliar to these people, these jokes, th th this way of responding to life. And something amazing happened. And it was done, you see, it was done live that day. Yes, it was, yes, yeah, over. You know, and it was really something. And then luckily, because of the contract thing, RTE could hold on to it without having, you know, to go back again to get make a deal with everyone. And so that's available, and that's gold. I mean, that's just gold. Just for, for, for viewers who might want to find that, what? How would they find it? Where? Where would they go? That's the 1982 one. Yeah, it, it, it's on the RTE website. I, I think as a podcast. Yeah, RTE website. Brilliant. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Hopefully all of our, our viewers have got that RT website and that's a 1982 live radio. Live Ulysses, yes. Oh, amazing, absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, I have a question here from an anonymous attendee. Do they teach Joyce in the Irish secondary education? Because it seems to be entirely absent from English schools. Uh, why might this be, Colm? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, they, they wouldn't teach Ulysses, I don't think, because they, I mean, they have, the books have to be shorter than that. But I, I would imagine that some of the, sh the short stories are now uh, uh, would, would be part of an essential curriculum, no? I'm not so sure that they are. They should be, of course, but I'm by no means certain that they are. Joyce's, uh, you know, relation to the curriculum in Ireland is a very odd one. Briefly, a passage from Ulysses did appear in a Living Start prose anthology, actually. The, the, the speech about the Jews and the, the Egyptian high priest was there for a while, but I think vanished again. So he's by no means being, you know, plugged big time by the Irish education system. I'm afraid not. I'm not even certain that Dubliner's stories, which are crying out to be included, of course, are actually there, you know, mm. unfortunately. Mm. But uh, yeah, never mind, never mind. I, I was going to one about, about UCD and attitude to Joyce and UCD in my time and Collins, around Collins' time too. It, was, it wasn't massively favorable in every way either. I mean, you know, some people have reservations, shall we say. Some people prefer Yates, which is fine. You can prefer Yates by all means. Oh, yeah, there used to be a Morris argument, which I used to lose, uh, about Henry, Henry James, who was who the greater novelist. Henry James with his, with his immensely privileged people and his beautiful long sentences and, and or, or Joyce who represented machines of modernity and, and you know, sexuality open. And this could go on for hours and, you know, you could walk home defeated. And yes. that you should have said one more thing. And it was so close to moments out of the portrait of the artist, you know, where, where you were trying to be Stephen and not Cranley, you know, you were yeah. trying not to be Gavin. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, yes. those, those were honestly, I swear they were burning arguments. Um, mm -hmm. And Gates would come into this too. But the James mm -hmm. Joyce thing, you couldn't win if you were on the side of Henry James. You just lost that boxing match. <laughs> You're a loser. It was pure <laughs> knockout. <laughs> 
Yeah. And yet you have to wait until you're at university before you get it on the curriculum. Um, mm. We have one uh, last question here. Which, uh, oh, hang on, I've lost it. No, yeah, there we go. Which edition, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I think it is worth one of you stressing it. Terence, let's have you stress it. Uh, uh, which edition of uh, Ulysses do you recommend? Oh, yes, the Gabler one, as we've been saying all, all night, I think, really. Yes, the, the, the now issued by Vintage, Random House Vintage, uh, recently. I can't recall who wrote the preface, but anyway, it's there. And yeah, you that's exactly I, I would tell you who wrote the preface. There is a preface, isn't there, on that version? Is no, there? there's no preface. No preface. Well, well, there's another, another, I think there's another one. Man Enright. I think Man Enright has the preface. Man Enright, Enright, yes. Um, but in any case, it's Walter Gabler did yeah. a cleanup, basically, of the, because it was press printed in France by French printers. And even the English speaking printer made more of a mess than the French ones did. And in any, in any case, it needed an, a huge amount of cleaning. Yeah. And it, it may not be perfect, this edition, but it's really the one. That's also wonderful because it's, it, the lines are numbered, which yeah. means if you're looking from Terence's book to this book, you can find the line. Well, Great cross-reference. I think it, yes, is, it, it is. I think it is, it's accepted now as a standard, a standard edition, the one edited by Hans Walter Gabler. Exactly. Edited by Hans Walter Gabler. It's the... It's the, I think, the Bodley Head edition, which is... Bodley Head, um, yes. Yeah, Bodley Head in Britain, and I think Random House in, in America, yeah. There we go. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. uh, which sort of brings us with this idea of the, the sort of living text and, and the, con you know, things still changing in this in this text. Uh, to one uh, last question before I promise that I will let you go, which is the, the recent news that Stephen Joyce, the grandson of James Joyce, uh, has bequeathed Joyce's personal letters uh, to Reading University. A lot of them come from the patron, um, from Joyce's patron, Harriet, Harriet Weaver Shaw, and they'll illuminate that side of a dialogue that thus far we'd only seen one side of. Um, Terence, how excited are you by that? What do you expect to find there? Oh, yes, it's, it's, it's great to know. I mean, we'll regret it's not in Ireland or in Dublin, but I'm not that surprised either. Stephen Joyce inherited a lot of the family's ambivalence, put it mildly, distrust of Ireland and wouldn't have been prepared, I think, to let it come here. It went to the University of Reading mainly because Samuel, Edward, Samuel Beckett's nephew, Edward, had strong links to Reading and was a good friend of Stephen Joyce. And as for the content, yeah, I mean, we'll we have to see. But, well, it's exciting. It's certainly exciting. It's always exciting to hear new Joyce material coming along. And there's some very interesting sentimental material there as well. A, a brace that, that Joyce gave to Nora, um, and he had it made in Dublin in 1909 and gave her it as a particular gift when he came back from his visit to Dublin. That's there, plus a manuscript of Chamber Music, his first volume of poems that he wrote out for Nora and has been in the family's possession ever since and is now in Reading. So, yes, I'm both excited and looking forward to and finding out more about it. It might feature in your next uh, updated version of The Indeed. Companion. Who knows? Who knows? Um, thank you both so much for having been uh, with us this evening, for having stayed late. I'm sorry I've kept you so uh, long. I think uh, all our viewers will agree that we have seen tonight the enthusiasm that comes uh, with two people who have invested in Ulysses and have been rewarded. And I think that is a lesson to all of us. The more you invest in this text, the more you get out of it. Uh, so whether you're approaching it by audiobook or by text with Terence's uh, companion in hand, uh, please uh, enjoy it, uh, make the most of it. And perhaps it takes a long winter, in which case you might have to wait till next year. <laughs> or perhaps you can make a long summer of it. Uh, but please do enjoy the text. And uh, to Colm Tabin and Terence Killeen, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you very much, Thank you. Thank you.
This episode of the podcast starred Terence Colleen and Colm Tabeen and was presented by Bel Donati. The series is produced by me and Dana Outcult, and this episode was produced by Esme Bright. If you enjoy the show, share it with your friends, review us, and buy a copy of Terence's book, Ulysses Unbound, which is out now wherever good books are sold. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Listener.